0: Our scripture reader today is Sarah Payette, and she's going to be reading Revelation 3, 14 through 22. In honor of God's word, please stand.
1: And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you I say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and not be ashamed of your nakedness not to be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. For the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord.
0: So uh, we have been in a series in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 uh, on these seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches. And, um, and, and these are seven real churches in seven real locations that existed uh, in, in the first century. Uh, some of them we've been able to find more about their, uh, their, rem- their remnants and uh, the archaeology that, that's been done in the region has, has found out more information Uh, Some there's a little bit less known, Uh, but these are seven real churches that Jesus uh, wanted to communicate something specific uh, to to those churches. Uh, We've said, I think almost every week, that why seven? Why why did Jesus pick seven? Uh, And, and, you know, the book of Revelation is full of uh, imagery and symbolism, and the number seven is known as the number of completion or the number of perfection, and so a lot of Bible scholars look at Jesus and he's, you know, he picks seven real churches. I mean, there are real locations with real churches. But the reason why he picked seven might be an invitation to us to say, here's what I want. If, if you put them all together, like this is my critique of my church. This is what I, this is what I long for. These are the areas of correction that are needed. These are the areas of faithfulness that are needed. And it's in a sense, you could put all seven letters together and get a comprehensive view of what Jesus wants uh, from his his church. And so we've made our way all the way through. This is the seventh and final of those churches. And uh, as you'll see, it'll take us to the end of, of chapter three. So today, three simple points. Uh, one, a recap, because it's our last church, we're gonna walk back through all seven uh, and then reveal and return or repent. So first, <clears throat> the recap. Um, chapter 2 and chapter 3 of, of Revelation include these little letters. Some of them are a few verses. Uh, some of them are just two or three verses. And Jesus walks through these various specific churches, and he offers some feedback. So he, here, here's a, a snapshot of them, as well as maybe a little bit of a thought of maybe how could you categorize it if we are trying to categorize it in the 21st century in our, in our situation, what might, uh, you know, there's a lot of churches in Traverse City. There's a lot of churches in the state of Michigan. Uh, as, as you think about the various churches that maybe you if, you, if you've gone to church before, that you've been connected to, if you lived in another city, the kind of church that maybe you went to, uh, the kind of church that your, your best friend goes to or that, you, that, um, that your neighbor goes to. Uh, and so he, here's, here's a, a, some thoughts on, on the recap. The first church was the church at Ephesus. And you see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And, and this church would be kind of like the committed, like the doctrinally committed church. Really serious about, about the Bible, about, about, about doctrine. But they had some problems. They, they were loveless. They were cold. I think you could say they were like fundamentalist, hardworking. And as Jesus looks at this church, <clears throat> he says there's many good things, but here's the biggest problem. You've lost your first love. And so to the church at Ephesus, he says there's some things that there's this commitment to doctrine that, that that's that's that can be good. But a commitment to doctrine can lead you to being really good at truth and not very good at love. So to the church at Ephesus, he says love. Second church, the church at Smyrna. This is a, a pretty short little uh, letter that he writes to the church at Smyrna. And one person suggested that this might be your persecuted church, your 1040 window church, your, your church that is facing the hardest of situations. They are afflicted and impoverished. They're suffering. But God actually looks at Jesus, looks at them and says, you, you, you're suffering, but you're, you're actually rich, rich in good deeds. You're, you're actually fruitful in the way that I want my people to be fruitful but he also says they're fearful, that they're, that they're a little scared. And so Jesus looks at the church in Smyrna and he says to them, be faithful. Be faithful. Hang in there through the persecution. Third is the church of Pergamum. See this in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And you might be able to define this church as like the energetic or maybe like the charismatic church. This church was, was pretty much uh, ready to go. They were passionate. But they were also compromised. As Jesus speaks to this church, he, he, he recognizes their passion, but he says they've compromised to the cultural and the sexual culture that surrounded their church. And Jesus looks at the church at Pergamum and he says to them, discern. So much pressure. So much pressure to just buy into what the culture is doing. So much pressure to just approve what the culture approves. And there's a passion to this church. But Jesus says, I also want you to be discerning. Fourth, Thyatira. Thyatira has a lot of similarities to Pergamum. You see this in chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, A little bit, one of the longer letters. And you might say, this is like the liberal church, the, the warm-hearted liberal church. They, they are service-oriented. They are very, very welcoming. But they, similar to Pergamum, they've undervalued Doctrinal fidelity and moral purity. They, they've compromised on some extremely important issues. And Jesus looks at them and he says, okay, good. You're loving. Like, I like that. that that's thumbs up to that. Let's celebrate that. But you're overtolerant. You, you haven't been willing to hold to, to my truth. So he says to them, Think. Fifth church is the church at Sardis. You see this at the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And this might be a megachurch. It might, might have that kind of the megachurch dynamics. They've got all the ministries. They've got all the marketing. But appearances are not what they seem. As Jesus talks to the church in Sardis, he says, Your reputation is so, so good, but I know the truth about you. Your, your reputation is that you've got it all together, but you actually it's the exact opposite. You might have a lot of things going on, but your hearts aren't in a good place. You have a lot of action, good reputation, but you're dead. And Jesus actually says to them, "Wake up. Wake up." The sixth church is the church of Philadelphia, and you find this in chapter three, verses eight through thirteen. Uh, this was. It seems like this is like the the uh, maybe the classic like small church. One person said it might be like an urban storefront church. That they feel like they're unseen. They feel like they're unknown. It's the little church in your, in your city that you've driven by so many times, but you don't even know the name of it. You Oh, yeah, I, I think I, yeah there's a church at that corner. I think I've seen that. They felt unknown. They felt worthless. They felt weak. They felt so small. But Jesus says, you've kept my word. And the church at at Philadelphia is one of the churches that Jesus gives no criticism to at all. He just gives them a big hug. He just says, every factor should point to you guys giving up. Every every data point should say, what's the point? We're not not doing it. We're we're small. we're, We're weak. We're not getting it done. And Jesus is like, you know what you are doing? You're doing the most important thing. You've kept my word. You've kept me. You've kept me at the center. And so he says to them, press on, persevere, stick with it, keep going. And now today, the seventh church, Laodicea. And this might be considered a suburban church. This church is apparently quite rich, quite influential. It's the kind of church that, you know, in a in a in a in a normal suburb, it's like, this is the kind of church that the government officials, uh, go, you know, the mayor of the town goes to, uh, the, you know, the, the, the state representative that lives in the area, he, he goes to this church. This is the church that it's like, yeah, we, we've, we've got some, some serious credibility, some serious influence. We've got resources. They're affluent, but as we'll see, they are apathetic. And Jesus calls to them, be zealous. Actually, be zealous and repent. Now, as you look at that list, <clears throat> I, I, it's a natural tendency for me, so maybe it is a natural tendency for you, but it's to like look through that list and be like, okay, which one's the good one? Which is, is big church good or small church good or small church bad, big church bad, big church good, small church bad? What, what, which, one, which one is it? Well, one author says this. In regard to churches, big is not bad, small is not bad, rich is not bad, suffering is not bad, bad is bad, bad is bad, and when Jesus looks at these churches, he's not looking at them and saying, what are you so energetic for? What are you so passionate for? What are you so loving for? What are you so big for? What are you so small for? What are you suffering for? Now, Jesus doesn't critique those things, he comes alongside and he, and he actually addresses what is bad, what, what isn't working. And so as you look at this list of churches, there, there's a, an invitation for us to recognize that there's an opportunity for every one of these churches to be faithful, for every one of these churches to actually recognize where it is that they're not lining up with God's good design and for, that, for, for them to, to tweak and to grow. You know, as you look at these seven churches, though, Laodicea is probably in the worst shape. And it's not because they're in a suburb, quote unquote. It's not because they're rich and affluent. That, that, that's not the problem. You know, when you look at these seven churches, you know, Ephesus, Jesus actually said, you're in danger of being snuffed out. You're, you're in danger of me wiping you out. So that, that's pretty bad. That like, The situation's so bad that Jesus is just like, it might be better to not have a church in Ephesus than to have what you're doing. He says that, but he also says there's many good things about you. So they're getting ready to get snuffed out. But Jesus is looking and saying, there's so many things that we can celebrate here. Let's get it together. Let's pull it together. Sardis, it's the only other church that has nothing good said about them. But at least there was a remnant. And if you read the letter to Sardis, Jesus is actually talking more to the remnant than he is to the whole church. And he says, the church within the church, the ones that are actually genuinely following me, the ones that are actually my people, there's a remnant of them there. Many of that church have walked away. Many of that church is compromised. But at Sardis, there's this remnant. He says, now the remnant's about ready to die, but strengthen it. Fight for it. There's something alive still in that church. So Ephesus might get snuffed out, but there's good things to celebrate. Sardis is a mess, but there's a remnant. Well, to see you. Whew, you just heard the verses. Not only do they receive no commendation, G- Jesus does not approve of, of anything that is going on in their church. The content is worse than the omission. So yet Jesus does not give them any compliments, but what he does say about them is incredibly heavy. No compliments and yet a pretty heavy critique. Jesus actually says about this church that he wants to throw up, that he wants to spit them out of his mouth. That is a sobering take. So let's take a look at what Jesus has to say to this church. Verses 14 through 17, I want to just uh, invite you into the, the Jesus pulling the covers off, pulling the curtains back. Jesus revealing the real situation. He says, after he introduces himself, he says that he knows their works. You'll see that there in verse 15. I know your works. And if you read through all seven letters or if you were here through this series, you know that Jesus says this phrase to most of the churches. I know your works. Sometimes that phrase is bad news. Like he knows their works. He knows what they're doing and it's not good. Other times Jesus says, I know your works. And he goes on to say, way to go. I know your works, and I celebrate those works. I know your works, and it, it you know, puts a smile on my face. Like Way to go. So how is it here with Laodicea? Well, he says he knows their works. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So he says that their works are neither cold nor hot. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, on this idea, but some, maybe you've heard this before, that maybe what Jesus is saying is either be on fire for me or ignore me. Either be hot for me or be ice cold towards me. Like one of the two, like pick one, but don't be, you know, mushy in the middle, mushy in the middle, like hot for me or cold, ignore me. That is not what Jesus is saying here at all. When Jesus says, I wish that you were cold or hot, there would be no context in which Jesus would wish that they would be cold if cold meant to ignore him, if cold meant to reject him. What Jesus is saying is that cold water is refreshing and hot water is soothing, lukewarm water is gross. It is, it is good. It's good for nothing. It literally, if you were to look into the, it, literally saying spew you out of my mouth. It literally makes Jesus want to throw up, to, to puke. Now There's a little bit of a context here for, for why Jesus is, is engaging the church this way. Uh, as in so many of these other letters, Jesus is talking to this church in their context. And so in other letters, we've seen in light of what's happened in that city in the past, or in light of part of their industry that exists in that city in the present, uh, Jesus kind of uses those as illustrations, like the actual DNA of their city. Well, here in Laodicea, and, and these things are always, you know, these are uh, biblical historians that are, that are trying to put the pieces together. But apparently, um, there, there were hot springs. And, you know, hot springs have, have long been used for medicinal purposes Soothing, healing. Some of you have a hot tub at your house. Uh, It's it's an enjoyable environment to sit in warm water, hot water. And uh, there were hot springs about five miles from Laodicea. And that water actually would travel down to the city of Laodicea. But by the time the hot springs water traveled five miles, what do you think the condition of that water was? It wasn't very good. It certainly wasn't hot anymore. And so as that water traveled those five miles, it cooled off. And by the time it got to Laodicea, it was not enjoyable at all. It wasn't soothing. It wasn't wasn't medicinal. It wasn't healing. It wasn't refreshing. None of those things. Interestingly, another city, Colossae, was about nine miles away. And it was known for its refreshing cold water. Clean, refreshing. However, that water also flowed to Laodicea. And by the time that water got to Laodicea, nine miles later, it had lost its invigorating freshness, its coolness, its enjoyment, its benefit. Uh, In fact, historians also tell us that there's a river that ran through Laodicea, Lycus, the Lycus River. And their water was unfit to drink. Historians can, 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 uh, have, have found this out, that they did not drink their own water. It was dirty and contaminated water. It was water that was good for nothing. The hot water, the hot water is great. It's soothing. It's comforting. Think of a, a cup of hot tea on a cold winter night. Cold water is great, invigorating, inspiring. Think of a cold glass of water on a hot summer day. But not their water. The water in Laodicea was dirty and lukewarm. The kind of water that if you took a sip, you would want to throw up. So Jesus takes that reality, the actual specific situation of Laodicea, and he applies it to their spiritual life. And Jesus says, that's you spiritually. And that kind of spiritual life makes me want to throw up. Now, don't miss this. That is not how Laodicea saw themselves at all. Laodicea did not see themselves as, as, as uh, lukewarm. They didn't see themselves as some sort of water that would make you puke. No, they thought they were good to go. They, they saw their riches. They saw their resources. And they actually conclude, we don't need anything. Verse 17. This is what Jesus says to them. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. So Laodicea, in Jesus' mind, is, he wants to throw up. Laodicea, in their mind, they think they're the bomb. They think they've got it all going. They see their riches. They see their resources. And they conclude, we don't need a thing. Well, Jesus disagrees. You know, last week we saw that the church in Philadelphia, that they had what, what appeared to be the opposite problem. The, the church in Philadelphia was, was struggling. They were small, they didn't have resources. It was very understandable that they would look in the mirror and they would conclude, "You know, we're, 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 we are nothing. We're so pathetic. How could God ever use our little church?" Well, Laodicea did not think too little of themselves. No, they thought the exact opposite. They thought they were the feather in God's cap. They thought they were, you know, God's gift to the, to the world. And part of it was that their city had abundance. Their city was a very wealthy city. Bible scholars talk about a, a, an earthquake that had, uh, you know, this, this region. These churches are all within proximity of each other. And we've referenced the earthquakes in previous weeks. But there's an earthquake in A.D. 60 that came in and that badly damaged the city of Laodicea. And it damaged, you know, uh, many of the other cities in the region, too. But Laodicea quickly rebuilt itself without taking a single dollar from Rome. In other words, they had the money in the bank. And when the earthquake hit and damaged all their stuff, they just they could just write the check. They just had the money sitting there. And so they looked to their abundance and it's like, we don't need Rome we don't need outside help. We take care of us. We get it done. We have what we need. And that flowed into their entire life so that when they looked in the mirror, they concluded, we don't need anything. And you say, where did they get all this money? Well, scholars and historians believe that the city was known for three things. That it was known for its wealth, its its financial wealth, and that uh, earthquake, um, that er- earthquake situation kind of proves that to be true. They had significant resources financially. They were known for medicine. Uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of details you could read about that, but there was an eye powder that was made in Laodicea that was effective. It was like a healing ointment for the eyes. And then the third thing that they were known for was black wool. Uh, so they, they made this wool that was uh, black, almost like a silky, uh, had like a silky feel to it. But it was, it was a wool that, was, uh, that the Laodicea was known for. And Jesus takes those three situations, those three realities of finance, medicine and garment, and he plays off all three. And he says to them in verse 17 that instead, he says, you know, you look in the mirror and you conclude I'm rich, I prospered, I need nothing, not realizing Here's the reveal, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Poor, blind, and naked, playing right off of these three things in which this city was known for, their wealth, their medicine, and their garments. And Jesus says, you look around and is all you see is clothes everywhere, but I'm telling you, you're naked. You look around and see that you, you know, that you got this eye cream, this eye ointment. Like you're actually, you're, you know, sight's not a problem here. I'm telling you, you're blind. You've got money in the bank. You could rebuild your own city without help from the outside. I'm telling you that you're actually poor. As Jesus addresses these things, it is important for us to remember that abundance is not wrong. There are many faithful followers of Jesus who have been wealthy. There were in the Bible, there have been since the Bible, having abundance, having resources, having clothes, having medicine, having good health, having money in the bank. These things are not inherently wrong. There's actually some very good things about each one of them. But it can you know, abundance can so it's so dangerous because it can seduce you. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is, is writing to uh, his protege, to, to Timothy, a young, a young pastor. And this is what he says towards the end of, of the letter. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So as Paul writes to Timothy, he doesn't say that gain is bad and he doesn't say that wealth is bad. He says that if you don't have contentment, if you have this internal drive for more, 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 if you have a love for resources, a love for abundance, a love for money, he actually says that's the root of all kinds of evil. Because your heart wants more and more and more. There's a proverb that says the eyes of man are never full. When, when Paul says that it's the, it's, it functions like a trap, like a snare, We've talked about this before plenty of times, but that word is for like a a, a trap that is a a trap to catch birds. And it's like a noose. And what happens when you try to get out of a noose? It pulls tighter and tighter. And so Paul says to Timothy, as you pastor this congregation, Timothy, help them see this. Abundance isn't wrong. Wealth isn't wrong, but it's dangerous. There's a danger to it. There's a wooing, there's a a desire, he says a craving. Once you get a little bit, it's very natural to want more and more. Well, some of you know this, some of you have lived this. Poverty can provide its own set of challenges. In in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, this is what the, the writer of Proverbs says. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. One, keep falsehood and lies far from me. That's the first thing. Keep lies and falsehoods away. Second thing, give me neither poverty nor riches, but only give me my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So the writer of Proverbs says there, there, there's dangers abounding here. But when Jesus looks at the church at Laodicea, the challenge that they're facing, the problem that they're facing is not poverty, it's, it's abundance. And dare I say that in the culture and in the world in which we live, we, we, we are often in danger. We are often wooed and tempted by abundance. We have so much and yet we can think we need more and more or we may look in the mirror and say I don't need anything that's what the church at Laodicea said it can convince you that you don't need anything well last week if you were here I asked a a question for the church that was small and struggling and had no resources And I think the same question is appropriate and good when we consider this church that has so many resources. Last week I said, rewind to yesterday. What evidence is there that you think you really needed God? What evidence was on display on Saturday, April 9th, in your life that demonstrated the fact that you actually think that you needed God yesterday? Now, there might be some beautiful evidence. That, that, that would be a gloriously good thing. But is there evidence? You say, ah, oh, I was busy yesterday. Okay, last week, last month. Maybe a way to ask yourself it, it, uh, this question would be if you were charged with trusting God, would a jury find you guilty? Bring all the evidence into the courtroom, would a jury find you guilty of actually trusting God? And Jesus says that the woo of abundance, the the temptation of abundance, can lead you to the place where you actually don't think you need anything. Jesus wants to pull the covers off. Jesus wants to show Laodicea who they are. Are you willing to look at yourself through Jesus's eyes? Well, last point, this call to, to return or, or to repent. Jesus is showing them that their resources, their money, their medicine, their appearance, it's, it's tricked them. They're not dealing with reality. Jesus wants to show them something that they can't see. They have their eye ointment, but they're actually blind. They're not dealing with reality. They don't see what Jesus sees. They don't think they need anything. Now look, that might be right materially, but that could not be further from the truth spiritually. But please don't miss that there is good news tucked in here. As terrible as it would be to hear Jesus say, I want to spit you out of my mouth. There's some good news here. Look at verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Those who I love, I reprove and discipline. Do you see what Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea? What you're doing right now is gross. What you're doing right now makes me want to throw up. What you're doing right now is so deceived. You've bought this idea that your material things can get the job done for you, and they can't. You've got to stop. You've got to turn. Why would I ever say this to you, church at Laodicea? Why would I ever, why would I bring it up? And Jesus says, I'll tell you why. Because if I love you, I love you enough to reprove you. I, I love you enough to rebuke you. I love you enough to discipline you. That Jesus looks at this church and says, I love you too much to let you keep going like this. You're missing out. You're putting your hope in something false. And it's those who I love that I do this with. You we've said so many times that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And Jesus does not look at the church at Laodicea and just turn a blind eye and say nothing. No, he loves them enough to bring it up. He loves them enough to put it on the table in front of them. And he says to them, so be zealous and repent. Like, let's go. Let's get some passion. Let's realize what's at stake. And repent, turn from this way, turn from this lukewarmness. This call to repent, man, it is a fitting final point for the last Sunday of Lent. Over these weeks, this is the invitation. The invitation is actually be willing to to hold up the mirror and to, to be willing to consider the cracks and the crevices of our hearts, the ways in which we are not living consistently or faithfully with how God's called us to live. And here we come to the close of this series, and Jesus says to this church, repent. Now the word repent means to turn or to change. And biblical repentance is definitely playing off of that idea of turning and changing. But biblical repentance really has more an idea of a change of attitude. That that biblical repentance is to turn in your attitude of trust, to turn from trusting yourself to trust in God. Now that's certainly going to lead to change of behavior, but before behavioral modification, biblical repentance is worried about heart transformation. That there's a transfer of trust that in this case, instead of trusting in abundance, riches and medicine and clothing, you actually put your trust in God. You actually recognize that he's where you need to turn. And yes, once you turn to him, that's going to change the way you live your life. But before behavioral modification, it's first heart transformation. Jesus's call here is to turn from your false hopes and turn to Christ. Now, look, there's two ways to sin. What one way to sin is to do bad things. God said, don't do this and you do this. That's one way to sin. But another way to sin is to take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. To take money, which is a good gift from God, and make it the thing that your heart longs for. To make it the thing that your whole life bows down at. And you'll sacrifice your relationships and your, and your, and your health. All of, You'll sacrifice anything at the altar of more money. Comfort. Comfort's a good thing. But if it becomes an ultimate thing, then you've put your hope in the wrong place. And again, you will sacrifice all kinds of things to make sure you have comfort. Work and sex and relationships, these are all good gifts from God, but they can all become ultimate things. They can all take the place of God on the throne of your heart. And Jesus looks at this church in Laodicea and he says to them, I want you to turn from trusting in anything else. I want you to turn from doing it your way, and I want you to come to me. Transfer your trust. Come back to me. And repentance can be scary. I admit that openly. You know, C.S. Lewis has this little illustration where he says a lot of people invite God into their life because, you know, think of your life as a house. It's like you've got a leak in the bathroom upstairs, and you call God into your life because you need help with the leak in the bathroom. You invite God into your life, you turn around, and the next thing you know, he's ripped out the whole kitchen. And you're like, whoa, whoa, I just wanted you to fix the pipe in the bathroom upstairs. What what are you doing? But this is biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is actually turning to Christ and allowing him the throne of your heart. That's the deal. No doors are locked. No closets to hide your skeletons in. He has access to every part of you. You're actually giving him your life. This is the idea. This, this is the message. Follow me. Come to me. Let me be the Lord of your life. He's the Lord of all, including every square inch of your heart. Jesus is calling this church and he's calling us to stop dabbling. Yeah, you know, dabbling's lukewarm. Just going to church, just putting in the, you know, putting in the hours, you know, going through the motions. It's lukewarm and it makes Jesus want to puke. Let me close with this. I think that Jesus is indicating in these verses that spiritually speaking, the church in Laodicea is far from the source of their life. Just He liked using the analogies of the region. So just think about it. The hot water. The hot water is five miles away. The cold water, the source of the cold water, is nine miles away. Jesus, is he saying to Laodicea, You are way too far from me. You've just gotten way too far from me. Come back, draw near. Turn back to me and you'll regain your spiritual passion, your your zeal for me, for my word, for my way. Jesus is saying, I I offer this, but it comes in proximity. There's a psalm that talks about being in the shadow of his wings. How do you get in the shadow of something? You got to be close. If you go for a walk with your kid and you're walking down the sidewalk and they want to play in your shadow, they got to be close to be in your shadow. We've used an illustration here a few different times about the two different ways to to, to run a farm. One way to run a farm is the way that we run farms in the U.S., which is we put up a fence, and all the cows on this side of the fence are mine, and all the cows on that side of the fence are yours. But another way to run a farm is the way they run farms in the Middle East, and that is that they, they sink a well. And the animals never go very far Because they need water. Now, if you think about that illustration, I think that there's, you know, if you think of the fence as doctrinal truth, like doctrinal perimeters, I think there's incredible value for a fence. I think that God offers us fences on the pages of the Bible. But, brothers and sisters, we wanna have a well, a magnetic center, something that is drawing us back, that draws us close, that keeps us close. And it looks to me like Jesus is saying to this church at Laodicea, the sources, the sources of the hot water, the source of the cold, it's too far from you. The sources of your spiritual life, it's too far away. Draw near, come close. In the book of James, James says, if you'll draw near to God, guess what you're going to find out? He was never far. You were just turned the wrong direction. If you will draw near to him, you'll find out that he's been there the whole time. And look at verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is right there. He is standing right there. But they're turned the wrong way. And he says, repent, turn. Would you come and open the door? I am right here. I am not far off. You're not looking at me, but I'm not far away. Come back. Turn around, see me. And then in verse the end of verse 20 and 21, he says that if you open that door, boy, it is a really good idea. Because if you open that door, Jesus will come in and he will sit down and he will eat with you and you with him. He says communion is wide open to you. A shared meal is wide open to you. But you, you got to turn yourself around here you got to see what's sitting in front of you. you got to see who's at the door. And then Jesus goes on to say, and the one who does, the one who conquers, this is that Greek word Nike, the victor, the one who follows through, the one who does it, he'll sit on the throne with Christ. Why? Because Christ has already conquered. Look at verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus says, do you know what I've done for you? In seven days, we're going to be gathering right here for Easter Sunday. And on Easter Sunday, we put a a magnifying glass on the reality of the resurrection, that Jesus Christ, when he died and rose again, he conquered sin and Satan and death and all of our enemies. And in doing that, he conquered, he won. And Jesus looks at this church that is apathetic, that's lost their passion, that is, is lukewarm. Jesus wants to spit them out of, his, out of his mouth. And yet he says to them, I've conquered for you. I won for you. Do you know what I won? I won all of this for you. And I will give it to you, not because you deserve it, not because you could ever earn it. I'll give it to you as a free gift. All you need to do is turn around. All you need to do is come here. All you need to do is wave the white flag and recognize that instead of thinking that you need nothing, recognize that you desperately need me. Jesus is who they need. And in verse 18, Jesus ties into that. He says, Come to me, and I'll give you real gold. You've got gold in the bank, but I'll give you eternal riches. He says, Come to me, and I'll give you white garments of righteousness, that take away your shame. They have black garments in their city. Jesus says, I'll give you white garments and not just physically white garments. I'll give you garments that wash away your sin. Then he says, come to me and I'll give you the spiritual salve so that your eyes can actually see me. Not just physical sight, spiritual sight. It's what their, the eyes of their heart really needed. Jesus knows that he is who they need, and he literally is waiting. He says, I'm at the door knocking. Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, as we come to the table now, I want to invite you to consider what in your life you're not seeing clearly. In in what ways are you trusting in yourself, in your resources, instead of trusting in Christ, the one source of life? Have you drifted, drifted further from the true source of life than you realize? Has your zeal faded? Has your passion cooled? Man, Jesus invites you to turn around. Draw close. He's not far away. He's at the door. Open it. Our practice here is to get up and to go one, one of the four stations whenever you're ready to take communion. Uh, there will be some prayers uh, on the screen behind me. There will be some music uh, in the meantime, and then we will close with a song. The prayer team will be available uh, in the back if you would like someone to talk with. Servers and prayer team, please come. Let's pray. God, thank you for this this day. We thank you for this uh, this gathering that we get to have that uh, Sojourn Church gets to have. And God, as we close this series, you, you know, I've often wondered what would, what would the letter to Sojourn Church look like? What would be your commendation to us? What would be your critique of us? And God, I think, I think it's right for us to recognize that that's what this collection of letters is for. It's for us to, to put them all together and to, to lay them before us and, and to, to wrestle with which parts of these are true for us, which, which parts of these need to be addressed, which parts of these can we celebrate. And so, God, as we now consider this church at Laodicea and the lukewarmness, the apathy, the dabbling with you, God, for, for whatever we need, each individual person in this room, whatever it is that we need to hear. We thank you that the Spirit is at work. And whoever has an ear to hear what the Spirit says, God, would you, would you help us to hear with spiritual ears right now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.